So, she's speaking here, the woman, the Shulamite. She says, Oh, that you were like my brother, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to instruct me, I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. And now she's still speaking, but now she's now speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awaken you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for your love is as strong as death and jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it should be utterly despised. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. And she says to Solomon, my own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. And he says, you dwell in the gardens. The companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. And she says, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. So a lot happening here. There's a lot of back and forth that is transpiring. A lot of the chapters that we read was really just one person speaking. But we've got this back and forth. We even have what we could see as a new character in this, where you kind of see in verse 5, it may be a relative or a brother or a group of brothers speaking in regards to the woman. Um, I think we also can read it in such a way that she is speaking for her brothers, looking back. And I'll get into that as we get to verse 5. But in verse 1, she says, Oh, that you were like my brother, speaking to Solomon. And, and we got to understand this. Culturally, it was different, okay? We live in a completely different time. Um, some things are very similar. Some things are not. If you guys have ever traveled abroad, if you've ever been to a different country, you can understand that there's, there's different cultural aspects. You know, there, there's things that are regarded as okay. There's things that are regarded as bad. You know, that might be different here. Um, I've been to a few different countries and it's, it's always that way. Something that is culturally appropriate there is not always culturally appropriate here or vice versa. There's a lot of countries who, um, you know, the family is, is very important. It's very evident. You can see it. You know, here, not, not so much. <coughs> There's just, again, it's cultural. So one of the things culturally there was she's not wishing that he was literally her brother, but... What she was expressing is that she wishes she had the freedom like she does with her brother. So culturally then, you could have more freedom to be expressive, more expressive with siblings than you could with your own spouse. The, the expression of love was to be more hidden. Okay? So where I could hug my sister in public, it wouldn't be so much with my wife. 
This is what she's expressing. Expressing. She's wishing again that she could express, you know, her love for him. I think more openly uh, than she's technically allowed to. Uh, she's saying, "I would kiss you, and I would not be despised." So she goes on to say in verse two, "I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She used to instruct me. She who used to instruct me. I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate." I think there's two ways that you can look at this. One way that she's wishing that she could just bring him back to the place, you know, where she grew up, her childhood, that she could, that he could meet her, uh, her mother. Um, obviously, as a young lady, as a young girl, she learned a lot and was instructed a lot by her mother. I think that's one of the roles of a mom is to obviously train up their children in the Lord, but obviously too, like to you know, teach them how to cook and to clean and you know, change the oil in your in your car and you know, practical life tips like how do I start a fire and how do I do this and how do I do that and how do I, you know, deal with boys and how do I deal with girls and what's two plus two? Like, you know, it's a lot of things that, that we do as parents to teach our kids. I remember one time, Jalen, you remember this because you were there. I brought, this is like the very beginning of our ministry. Jalen was like 11 maybe. And uh, we were doing discipleship and we decided to go to McDonald's. Well, we go to McDonald's and I got like five 11-year-old boys with me and I said, go get your food, go order. None of them knew how to order. None of them knew how to order. They're like, what, what do I do? Like, I've never done this before. I'm like, tell them what you want. Um, you know, so there's just practical things that you learn in life from your parents. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is that I think we can look at it this way, is that she understands the wisdom that Solomon has. She received a lot of wisdom from her mother, a lot of instruction from her mother, um, but in a, in a poetic sense, she could be saying that I want to continue to learn from your wisdom. There's so much to be had and to learn from what you know. And we understand as we read through scripture that Solomon was the wisest man to live, right? Very, very wise. Now, sometimes that wisdom didn't translate into correct action, but it did not neglect or uh, desensitize, or I don't know what the word is, his wisdom, Right? It didn't make him any less wise. He was wise. That's what God blessed him with and gave him. Uh, so I think she wants to participate in that wisdom. She recognizes, I think, where she kind of falls short, and she wants to grow from it. I think that's a good thing from any of us to know and to understand. Is, Jeffrey, where do I fall short? What am I not good at? And let me find someone who is so I can learn and I can grow. Like you don't want to ever be stagnant. You always want to be corrective, to be able to be corrective, to be able to be teachable, to be able to be instructable because you want to grow. And you will never get to a point in life where you know more than everyone and that you know everything. But specifically with her, I think it was in regards to her marriage. Now Solomon, all throughout chapters 1 and 7, especially after their marriage, made it very clear to her that she was perfect the way she was. He wasn't trying to make her, make her better. He wasn't trying to change her. He saw her perfect the way that she was. But she would not allow that to make her stagnant and to never grow and to get better as a wife or as a human or as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So knowing that Solomon was completely satisfied with her, it allowed her to become a better wife. She didn't just stay in the same place. So she goes on in verse 3 and 4. 
um, as she's speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem. You guys remember, daughters of Jerusalem are kind of just like a chorus, the narrative. They're, they're this group of girls from the outside who are watching all this happening. And she's given them instruction before. She's going through life. She's got wisdom. She's gone through things. And now she's instructing these ladies. Like we see in Titus chapter 2, that the older women are to do what to the younger women? To teach them, to instruct them, right? But to instruct them in, you know, how to, how to be a woman, how to be a wife, how to be a mom. And so I think she's doing somewhat of the same thing here with the daughters of Jerusalem. She says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. We saw this same description earlier on in one of the chapters, just speaking of the security that she has within him and the love that she has for him. But she says here, a common theme throughout the scripture is I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Remember, this is the third time this is said. The other two times were in chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 2, verse 7. What does that mean? And what is that instruction that she has for them? I think there's a few ways that we can look at this. We can look at this sexually. Obviously, I think it's in a sexual sense, it's don't give, don't give away the blessing and the sexuality that God has given you until the right time. And through scripture, we know that the right time is in marriage, right? They, obviously, they loved each other. They were intimate with each other in the sense of not taking it too far, but they did it correctly and they waited for the moment of the union of marriage to then have that, that, that sexual intimacy together. And again, if, if God has designed it that way, it's probably the best way to do it. And I know that because of scripture, but I also know that because of life. I think if, if when we disobey the way God has designed things, you will quickly find out why he's told us to do things a certain way. There's consequences to things. There's consequences to doing things wrong. Does that mean like life is over and everything's messed up and we can't get back on the right track? No, that's not what that means. God can redeem and God can restore, but we don't go about it thinking that, oh, you know, God's going to forgive me anyway, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. That's, that's not a good way to live because there are really bad consequences to life when we decide to do some of those things. Another aspect of it is maybe in the simplicity of love. You know, don't awaken it too quickly. Don't, don't go about it too quickly. You know, wait till a certain time in your life where it's appropriate. You know, maybe don't be 14 years old in dating someone. You know what I mean? I mean, like, you, you can't even make your own sandwich. You can't even do your own laundry. You, and then you want to get into this, the, the complexity of relationships. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it can be comical sometimes. And obviously, we can't put an age to it. We can't say, you know, oh, you shouldn't be dating at 14. You shouldn't be dating at 15 or 18 or 19. No one can really say the age. But I think if you are walking with the Lord, you know when you're not ready. You know when you're not ready. You know, and sometimes I think in our society, we do things too young. We give our kids phones when they're too young. We give them way too much freedom and responsibility when they're too young. When we haven't taught them the right way first. You know, kids are obviously dating too young. I mean, it's just, there, there's a lot to be had and learned through your teenage years. Even through your 20s. I got married at 21, 
which is still pretty young. And I can tell you now that I am not half the person I was, what's that, 12 years ago? 12 years ago. I, like I think, I thought I knew a lot. I thought I was, you know, head and shoulders above everyone else when it came to maturity and understanding. But what I quickly found out is I, as I maneuvered through life and marriage is that I looked back and I was like, oh, snap, I knew nothing. I had no idea really what I was getting myself into. But by the grace of God, we were able to, you know, mature and grow. And so I say that because it's important. Um, you know, scientifically, they say that your, your brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25. Isn't that crazy? 25. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that you don't fully mature into or understand just until you, you go through things and you, you live and through time um, and through walking life with the Lord. So she says, don't stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And in verse 5, it says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? So here we have either a relative, uh, probably a brother, um, or, or something like that. I don't know. Um, but referring to them, to the couple, the man and the woman, uh, says, leaning upon her beloved. And we see that it is an apple tree. It says, I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. And so the apple tree... I don't think it was a literal apple tree, but figuratively, the apple tree was always a representation of like security. We see this in chapter 2, verse 3, that she found security with Solomon under the apple tree. Um, but here in verse 5, the end of verse 5, it says, I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. So again, it's not a matter of her mom happened to be under the apple tree and gave birth to her. That's not like a good place to give birth. Would you agree? Like, you know, um, when it came to my son, crazy thing. My son's 10 years old today. So 10 years ago, we had our first kid and we almost had him in the car. We were like 30 minutes away from having him in the car, literally 30 minutes. Um, but I say that because I don't think that she wasn't able to like get out from underneath the apple tree and go have birth wherever they had birth in that time. I don't know. Um, so that it's not in the literal aspect of her giving birth to the Shulamite woman under the apple tree, which also means that they weren't really um, being intimate under the apple tree either. Okay, so it's it's a figure of speech. So when it says in the beginning, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? There, it's speaking of this intimacy that this man and this woman are having, but it's not a literal place. It's not an apple tree. So they're not leaning up against each other. They're not intimate under an apple tree, nor is her mom giving birth to her years prior underneath the apple tree. They're not in the same spot. It's not a, a, an expression of a, a place. What it is, is it's speaking of, again, I think that security, the commitment, the, uh, that's the best way I can say it, the metaphorically speaking, that security and that commitment or the trust that is happening or that happens. And when you have that, you have the ability, obviously, you know, to give birth and to have a child, um, to be intimate with your spouse. Those things must come, you know, to have a good experience. That before sex, intimacy, and children, which are meant for marriage or after marriage, should be established after there's confidence and commitment, trust, security. Like, those things should come first, then the other things 
should follow. So only once one, when one's heart has been totally given over and a vow has been made, should these things happen, speaking of the intimacy and sex and children. Because again, it naturally leads into um, this idea that we're going to see in verses 6 and 7, which is commitment, loyalty, and belonging. So verse 6, it says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as a grave, its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement fire. So a couple of things, let's try to get through this quickly. There's a couple of things that is spoken of about love. The first thing we see is that true love is permanent. Okay, that's important because again, in the culture that we live in, in the society that we live in, it's typically not. The divorce rate is pretty high, right? And that's whether, you know, non-believers or believers, you know, people in the church or not in the church, it's, it's almost the same. Um, so when you go into marriage, oftentimes people go into marriage knowing that there's a way out. Knowing that there's a way out doesn't make you fully committed. You have to go into it fully committed, believing that there is no other way, that, that this is it, that, that no matter what happens, we are going to work this through. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes with that mentality, you might think, Man, marriage is going to suck because all we're going to try to do is to make it, make it happen and make it work, and we're just going to try and not get divorced. That's not what you should do. What should truly happen is you should truly be growing in your excitement, in your intimacy, in your love, in your passion. It should be growing. So it's not a matter of, yeah, I have a way out, but no, this is, this is good. This is for life. This is permanent. So true love is permanent. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm. Well, a seal here signifies the, the permanency. I don't think I said that right, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, that love is, is permanent. You know, that with complete trust for one another. And I think without this permanency and this trust, a marriage cannot stand. And so again, she's explaining this love being etched upon her heart and her arm, speaking of it being sure and permanent. And then she also says, for love is as strong as death. Love is as strong as death. And what she's saying is that just like death, that it's permanent and it's strong, so is the love that we should have for one another. And then she says at the end of that verse, making the statement that true love is not just permanent, but it's also faithful. That it's faithful. That we need to be found faithful when it comes to our relationship. She says, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Now, jealousy can obviously come about without unfaithfulness. But I think that here it's speaking of that faithfulness, that jealousy for what others have, it can be serious, it can be consuming as the place of the dead, right? The, the flames of fire. And I think when one person or one partner is not being faithful to the other, even as something as simple as time or commitment or affection, that it can be easy to for others to become jealous or to look for love elsewhere, to look for those things elsewhere. And that's not good. And that's why we need to be focused on, one of the, on each other, giving our time, affection, and commitment to one another. And so just like fire consumes, jealousy can consume. And when you give in to jealousy, well, what does that do? Well, what happens when you jump into a fire? You burn. Obviously, you know this, even though without having tried it, right? You burn. Well, that brings, you know, hurt and harm, loss, suffering. Same thing with jealousy. When you jump into that and you give into that, it brings metaphorically the same thing. You get burned. 
And so uh, well, one thing we need to understand is that the sin of jealousy, it will always steal your joy. So verse 7, Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. So the third point about love, true love, it cannot be quenched. Okay? True love. This is the love that God gives us. This isn't the love that Hollywood has revealed to us. Okay? That can be quenched. That can be unfaithful. That can, you know, uh, be semi-permanent. But true love, it cannot be quenched. There's no amount of water that could quench this type of love. And then she also mentions that if a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly, utterly despised. So the fourth point about true love is that it cannot be bought. True love cannot be bought. It's priceless. So there's obviously there's no amount of money that can buy true love. And if it could be bought, I think we would define it as superficial. Right? There's no amount of money that could be offered. It would be turned down. Verse 8, it says, We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? So here what we see is her brother speaking. It could be her speaking for her brothers, reminiscing and looking back to when she was a child, because that's the picture we get here with these types of words. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. This is before she has hit puberty, so she's young. She's little. There's, there's many things that she does not know, but her older brothers... They know things. They're wiser. They're more understanding. And they know someday my little sister may get married. Guys are going to pursue her. She may pursue guys. And she said, they say this, What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Ladies, do you guys have any brothers in here who are, who are, are protective of you? Yeah, that like, or even fathers, like it can, it can go beyond brothers. Brothers, if you're not that way, start being that way. It's a good thing. It's a biblical thing that you should be looking out for um, your sister. You know, and here again, speaking of her being young, and that she's not aware of everything, but they're aware that someday, again, she's going to have interest and she's going to pursue marriage. But they think, they are wise to think that those things to think through things before the time arrives. Before the time arrives. They hope to protect her from danger so that she and her purity are maintained. Verse 8 in the New Living Translation says this, If she is chaste, we will strengthen and encourage her. But if she is promiscuous, we will shut her off from men. They're protective of her. They're wise. Basically what they are saying is they will guide her and they will help their sister according to her character and her choices. If she's strong, if she's wise, well, they're going to build upon that. They're going to instruct her. They're going to teach her. They're going to, they're going to use that as a stepping stone to, to guide her and to lead her. But if she's dumb, they're going to correct her that way too, but they're going to correct her in a different way. She's not ready yet. She's not mature yet. So they say, we're going to shut her off from men. We will enclose her with cedar boards. Now, again, this, this is... Poetry, this isn't literal in this sense. So they're not shutting her up like Rapunzel, you know, and, and never being able to escape the room. That's not what's happening here. But they will shut things down pretty quick because she is not at that age yet or the maturity level yet to pursue a husband or someone to be her husband. 
And I think it's good to have older brothers like this. So verse 10, we've got to get through this. I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. So what we see here is that she has kept herself for immorality and that she herself has matured. Okay, here, this, this speech of her breasts like towers is, is her maturing, her growing older. Okay, it's not in a literal sense. Towers are always a representation of what? Security, strength, right? This, this is her character. This is what she's grown into. This is what her brothers had hoped for that they could build upon and continue to, to train her up in. And so I think there's, there's a couple things that we can get from this is that she made sure that she was not going give to give her sexual purity and dignity away, right? Saying that her breasts are like towers, that she's strong and secure. But I think there was also another aspect of this where there was no way that she was going to let any man be seduced into sin because of her immodesty on her part, right? She wasn't going to be weak in judgment and restraint, letting herself be taken advantage of. She was wise. And then I think this goes for men and women, that we have to be wise in how we not only dress, okay? I mean, I don't want to get too far into that. I think, you know, the Lord will give you the wisdom and understanding of how you should dress, but also how we carry ourselves, right? Sometimes it goes beyond how we dress, but how we carry ourselves. The people that we approach, the things that we do, you know, the, the, the reputation that we may have or not have, those things are vital and they're important. So verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. So what she's speaking of here is that Solomon actually literally had a vineyard. Okay, he leased it to the vineyards to keep. Um, he entrusted caretakers to work, up, work on it. Um, they were to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. And they could, take, they could make money off of the fruit, but they had to pay a leasing amount. And that leasing amount... Um, in the sum of 1,000 pieces of silver. So she's giving us this understanding in a little sense. This is what he has to get into this figurative sense so that we can understand verse 12. She says, My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a 1,000, and those who tend its fruit, 200. So now referring to her own body as the vineyard, she explains that she has given her entire being to Solomon. And Solomon alone reaps the benefits of it. Right? But here's the thing. This is important, ladies and guys. This isn't just for ladies. Is that she recognized her own value. That's so important. She recognized her own value, that she was valuable, and that she defended her honor. She defended her purity, both when she was young, both in the beginning of the relationship, prior to the marriage, that she valued it and she wasn't going to give it up until it pleased, until the right time. Until, again, until there was a a perfect moment for that, which is is within the union of marriage. And then within the union of marriage, what does she do? She gives of it freely because it's a good thing. It's it's a thing that God has created. God has created sexuality. He's created to be good. He's created to feel good. He's created to, to bring people intimately close together and to have that bond. And so she freely and rightly gives it to Solomon. Right? New Testament tells us, that the husband's uh, body is, is for the wife and the wife's body is for the husband, right? To, to treat their body as if it's your own. So there's a protection in there that, that my spouse is mine and I am hers, but not to the extent of 
the wickedness the way the world sees it, where it's a selfishness type of take, 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 that you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. It's controlling, it's a domineering type thing. But with love, love is gentle, love is kind, and love treats her body as if it's mine. Right? So I, no one hurts their own body. So there's this balance of we're for each other, but we don't domineer, we don't take, we don't control. And that's what love does. So, verse 13, You who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Solomon is saying he wishes that he could hear her voice. They're not together at this point. He wishes he could just listen to her voice. And she responds. She calls for him to make haste, to hurry up. Come quickly. They want to be reunited again. That She loved her husband to be close to him, to be near to him. And, and he knew that. And so we see that the Song of Solomon, I think it closes with the same passion that it started with, right? That even though we started in the beginning stages of the relationship, where it seems like that's where all the passion goes, and then it starts to fade, well, no, it doesn't. It continues with that same passion, even after they've been together for many years, they've gone through marriage, they've gone through ups and downs, it is still there. The excitement and the passion has not been lost, and so she yearns to be with him, and she says, make haste. And this make haste reminds me of the passion and the excitement that we should have for our Lord Jesus, right? That we should have that, that same intimacy and desire to be near to him, that I don't, I don't just go day by day forgetting about him. But no, if, if, there, if there goes a day where I'm like, man, I didn't even pray to him. I didn't even think about him. I didn't even read the word. Like it should make us feel a certain way as if I didn't see my wife today. Right? That, that I want him to be near. And ultimately, as believers, there's one thing that we desire of Christ is for him to come, is to come back. Right? I mean, we, you know, life is good and dandy and all, but it's, it's also hard. And there's something better in store, and that's with us being in the presence of Christ. And so the second to last verse in the entirety of the Bible says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. We want him to make haste. We want him to come because we long to be with him. In one sense, he is with us now, right? He has given us the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. But it's not as good as it's going to be when we are in his literal, physical presence. It's going to be much greater. And that's why, you know, sometimes you may not understand this, but you see Christians, especially older Christians, where they're just excited for Jesus to come back. It's because they understand how much better it's going to be in the presence of Christ. 